0: I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We've been working through this letter of Paul, his first letter to the church in Thessalonica. We concluded last time, two weeks ago, uh, with verse 12 of chapter 4. Now, just a couple years ago, we... Considered together the significance of what we're taught in verses 13 through 18 of that chapter. How when Jesus comes back, those who uh, belong to Him, those who have lived believing in Him and have died, they will be raised from the grave, renewed, restored, perfected, and reunited with Christ bodily. Though they were uh, with Him spiritually, now they're fully restored. And we too will join Jesus' perfected body and soul as His servants. We're going to read that passage and then look at the 11 verses that follow that apply how we're to live in the light of that. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For... Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them, as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night or of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with Him." Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another just as also you are doing. Amen. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. Beloved family of God in Christ, what do we do with the end times? Many of the doctrines that Scripture presents to us have relatively clear applications to life, don't they? We read about sin and defilement. The clear application there is that we need to repent and trust in the Lord Jesus. When Scripture speaks of Christ-likeness, a clear application is that we, we need to pray for God to strengthen us so that our very lives might become a witness to Christ. When we read about or hear preached the doctrine of God's providence, the clear application is to trust in the Lord that He will provide whatever we need. Time and again... The doctrines that come out of God's Word lead us to clear applications within our lives. But then we come to eschatology, the study of the end times. As I said before, we looked at that chapter, or that end of the chapter, verses 13 through 18, some time back, and saw how The day is coming soon when Jesus will return and He will raise bodily all of those who've ever lived trusting in Him. They will be raised and taken to be with Him, never to depart. And in today's text, we're told about the day of the Lord and the judgment that that will bring. All of that involves eschatology, the teaching of the end. One day soon Christ will return and all men will stand before Him and they will be judged. Those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life will be welcomed into the fullness and the perfection of God's presence forever and a renewed creation, while those who maintained their rebellion against God, they will suffer the same fate as Satan and his fallen angels, suffering for all of eternity, God's wrath. Now what do we do with that? I mean, obviously we should believe it and we should praise God for ordaining to save us from the judgment we deserve, but is that it? Is that all the application there is to eschatology? It's not. And the passage we just read was really written to give us the introduction, the primer to the, es- to the, the response to which we're called by the study of the end. And really the rest of this chapter fleshes that out. What does it look like to live as sons and daughters of the day of the Lord? What does it look like? What does it sound like? What is it, how does it change us to live as those who are looking forward to the return of Christ, who are confident about our eternal standing? God calls His people to apply, not just the study of sin and salvation, not just the study of God's providence and of His creative work, God calls His people to apply their understanding also of the end, and that's what we see here. Now as we see, as we study that, we're gonna see that there are three main applications in our text. As I said, later in the chapter we're gonna see how that's fleshed out some. But when God calls His people to apply their understanding of the end, that begins with with the application that I believe is the easiest to do, and that's the calling to simply expect the coming of the day of the Lord. And that's what we see first of all. We're called to expect the coming of the day of the Lord. Remember what Paul and his friends had said at the end of chapter 4, how they didn't want christians to grieve as unbelievers at the death of their loved ones so paul explained how christ would return that he he would resurrect those of his people who had died he would call forth those who still lived trusting in him he would bring them to himself in the clouds for an endless reunion well now paul moves to a second aspect of christ's coming Talking about the fullness of the day of the Lord. Now understand that phrase, day of the Lord, is deeply rooted in the Old Testament. If you had said to a Jew back then, what do you know about the day of the Lord? Well, he would have thought of passages like Isaiah 13, which talked about how the day of the Lord was to be a fearsome time when God's wrath would be poured out upon sinners and they would be removed from the place of His promise. They would think of maybe Amos 5 which admonished God's people who continued in their sin and their rebellion not to look forward to the day of the Lord because on that day all of their hypocrisy would be revealed and they would be cast out from God's presence. And they would hopefully think of Malachi 4 which taught them that... That God's day of the Lord and the wrath that would be poured out upon His enemies would be preceded by His mercy, which would turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, so that they would together learn to turn back to the Lord in repentance and faith. To the day of the Lord, it fills the writings of the prophets talking about what is to come. And now Paul addresses this day of the Lord. He's speaking of the same thing that Isaiah and Micah and Amos and Malachi all spoke of. He said, "...this will come as a day unexpected and sudden, while the people of the world work and play, eat and drink utterly unconcerned. Without warning, the day of the Lord shall pounce upon them. They'll be thinking that all is peace and safety, but when that day arrives, they will have no peace. And safety is the farthest thing from them. Because on that day of the Lord... Christ will judge the sinful deeds of all men. He will reveal every thought of their minds, the fullness of their understanding, the depth of their sin. And every excuse that they long to utter will be silenced. Because it will be clear that each man, woman, and child from every age understood sufficiently from the creation itself that God exists and that He was to be worshipped. And yet stubbornly they denied him. They refused to submit to this one who had made them for his glory. Even the deepest thoughts of their hearts shall be known. They'll stand, every one of them, naked before the judging or the, the judgment of God. It'll be a day of agony and destruction. Having rebelled against the Lord, men shall receive a dreadful sentence. They shall exist everlastingly to suffer the torment that their sins deserve. That is the terror of the day of the Lord. And none shall escape because all sin needs to receive, because God is just, all sin needs to receive the consequence of His judgment. However, Paul says to these Christians of Thessalonica, for you who are in Christ, that day is different. To be sure, it will come Suddenly, it's arrival unexpected and surprising. And to be sure, their existence also would be changed. But for them, and beloved, for us, that day is not a day of destruction or judgment. Look down at verse 9. He says, "...for God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ." Now what is it that's different between those for whom the day of the Lord brings wrath and judgment and us for whom it brings the fullness of our salvation? Well, the difference is what we find in verse 4. Paul's friends in Thessalonica, they were not in darkness like those to be judged on that coming day. For those who live in darkness... That day will, will be shocking. They don't expect it because they fervently deny the existence of God. So that day will spring upon them like a thief in the night and God's judgment will rain down upon them with terror and ruin. But we, he says, are not in, in darkness we are sons of light and sons of the day. Now in Bible times to say that you're a son of something means that which is, the, or that, that is what identifies you. That is what is your, your passion and your delight. So if you loved studying Scripture, you would be, a call, be called a son of the Word or a son of the Law. If you loved making wine, you might be called a son of the Vineyard. <clears throat> so to be a son of the light is to be... Characterized by, to belong to the light. Think about how scripture speaks of the light. It's that which is open and true, that which is filled with hope and goodness. It's that which is characterized by and which leads us to God. So Psalm 119 speaks about how scripture shines a light upon our path. And by it, says Psalm 4, we see the light of God's face. John describes Jesus as the light who entered a world filled with darkness. And Jesus Himself said, He is the light of the world who delivers us from the darkness of sin. So to be a son of the light is to possess the light of Christ. It's to be delivered from the darkness of our sin, our rebellion, our unbelief. And having been delivered to have within us the unshakable hope of Christ, the salvation of our Lord Jesus. Those who are sons of the light are sons of the day. It's not just speaking of the daylight out there right now. It's, It's referring to the coming of the day of the Lord. That day for us is to be longed for and embraced because it's our day for us. Oh, it's a day of revealing. It's a day of everyone knowing what our lives consisted of. But on that day it will be revealed that throughout all of it, despite our sin, despite our stumbles, we trusted the Lord Jesus. And by His Holy Spirit He was at work within us. He was transforming us. He was giving us hope and joy that was utterly foreign to the sin with which we were born. On that day it will be revealed that we increasingly throughout our lives came to love the Lord Jesus and to reveal Him through all that we were and all that we did. That day we will be perfected. Our character that was contrary to the character of Christ stripped away once for all and all of our gifts, all of our abilities, all of our understanding perfected so that finally we can become what we were made to be. So for sons of the light, for sons of the day, for us, we can expect that day eagerly. For those of the darkness, it will be a day of sorrow, but for us, a day of joy unquenchable. For sons of the world, that day will bring bondage, but for us, freedom like we could never otherwise imagine. All that Jesus began during His three years on earth All that He secured when He said it is finished on the cross, all of that will be fully applied to us then. The creation will be renewed in absolutely, in absolute glory. Adam's race, all of those who trusted in Jesus, will finally bear in all of its fullness the Creator's image, and we will be reunited with God in a way that we can only dimly imagine now. We must expect the coming of the day of Christ with great eagerness. And more than that, we need to live as children of the day of Christ. We need to live as children of the day of Christ. Verses 6 and 7. The apostle commends the Christians of Thessalonica to a different way of life. Those who are of the world are surprised at the coming of the day of Christ. And no wonder, because they live their lives in darkness, in the, the, the nighttime of unbelief. He says they, they basically they go through life asleep, lacking concern for the things around them, not anticipating the, the realities which will soon dawn upon them. As those who live in the night and embrace the darkness, they embrace drunkenness. What is drunkenness? Why is it so very wrong? Young people understand drunkenness removes our inhibition, our natural unwillingness because of our conscience to do that which is rebellious against God. But when we get drunk, that inhibition disappears and we're far more willing and ready To cast off all restraint and do what we know that God hates. We're able to silence that voice that says, you're going to have to answer for this someday. This isn't what God wants for you. But because they live in the darkness, they embrace that drunkenness. They embrace those passions of the flesh. They don't think about tomorrow because the thought of tomorrow is terrifying to them. Tomorrow they might have to answer for all this. So they push that aside. They hide it. They drown it as it were. But we must be different. Because we belong to Christ. We're sons and daughters of the day of His coming. Very truly, we belong to and are identified by that coming day. And that means we must be radically different. Look at verse 6. If I can find the start of verse 6. Ah, there it is. He says, Let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. Those who are of the night are asleep, but we must be awake and alert. The word word rendered watch there is very strong. Think of a man who is tasked with guarding a city against a powerful enemy army. He knows that if he loses focus, if he starts drifting off into daydreaming or, or naps... The whole city could be overrun and destroyed. He has to have the earliest possible notice of the coming of the enemy. And so he does whatever is necessary in order to stay awake and alert, in order to see the smallest changes in the the distant horizon. Well, that's our calling. We need to be on guard against the approach of the enemy, our spiritual enemy. That means, young people, you need to watch diligently for that which tempts you to go astray. And when you find it, when you go astray, when you wake up one morning and realize that I lived yesterday as a child of the night rather than a child of the day, you figure out, you sit down and, and work out what it was that you did that allowed you to take step by step by step out of the light and into the darkness. And you avoid that. Turn aside from it. Pray for God's strength to avoid it. Ask your friend or your parents to hold you accountable. So that you don't go into that temptation, so that you don't open yourself to that sleepiness. We need to guard ourselves against being lulled into a sense that we're in control, that we're able, that we're strong. We're not, not of ourselves. We rely on the Lord. And He doesn't, He doesn't withhold from us temptations that are stronger than we are. Instead, He provides a way of escape. You can't just stand up against temptation. You have to get away from it. You have to guard yourself against it. So we need to watch and we need to be sober. That is, we need to be self-controlled. We cannot be controlled by the desires and the passions of the flesh. What that means is each day as... Lord's Day 33 of our catechism says each day we're called to be converted. Daily choosing to put off the sins of the old man, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the world, and to put on the desires and the image of Christ. It's not a one-time thing. Annika, you did a wonderful thing coming forward and, and professing your faith here. An even greater thing in meeting with the elders to express what you've learned through all your years studying God's Word. That's not the end though, is it? No. Young people, children, all of that catechizing, all of those studies of the Bible at home, all of that that you learn in school and talking to your parents all of that is preparation so that each and every day we can stand in in Christ. That we can live as children of the light. Because we're in a battle. A battle for our very souls. A battle between the old Adam within us and the new creature made in the image of Christ. And if we're to stand in the midst of that battle, we need to be well armed. We need to put on, says Paul, the breastplate and the helmet. Notice those are defensive weapons. You can't stand in battle if you're susceptible to every weapon of the enemy. So he gives us a breastplate and a helmet. People that train for combat, they learn that when an enemy comes at you, you shoot for center of mass, right? Because that's what's going to stop a person. And if that doesn't work, you move up a little bit. So he provides us with that which will defend us in our most vulnerable positions. But notice that that defensive weaponry, it's very active for us. It's the breastplate of faith, trusting in the Lord, reading His promises and and believing them, applying them to our hearts, reaffirming it daily. The breastplate of love, expressing to others the love that's been expressed to us, expressing back to God, reflecting to Him that which He has given to us, And our helmet is the hope of our salvation. You can't wear that helmet if you're not studying the promises of God and the works that Jesus did to secure those promises. You see, putting on this armor is an active behavior. It's something that we take up every day in our devotions, in our prayers, in our Christian living the more we're living the life of a Christian by reading God's Word and spending time in prayer and showing the character of Christ, the more well-protected we are against the slings and arrows and temptations of Satan. And we must do it. Because, he says, God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with Him. Wrath is not our future. That's what the world should expect because they've lived in rebellion against Him. They deserve His wrath. But because of what Jesus did for us, because He suffered wrath on our behalf, we can expect something far better. While they receive God's wrath, we receive God's full salvation. Think about that. The holiness of Christ shall be fully ours. We shall be absolutely righteous in not just what we do, but what we desire and what we think and what we say. The love that we show shall be absolutely untainted by any selfishness or sin. That is what we were appointed for. The full possession of the salvation of Christ. That's why He came. That's why He did what He did. And that's why today we need to start that fullness of what we were made for by living as children of the day. Children, young people, you're going to fail at that. You're going to fall short. You're going to stumble. When you stumble, get back up. Dust off your armor. Remember the faith and the love that have been given to you read anew the hope of salvation that rests in the promises of Christ that your helmet might be firmly established and then push on in the battle living as children of the day living as those who aren't appointed for wrath but to obtain the full salvation of Christ now what that looks like living as children of the day we're going to talk about that in in the coming weeks lord willing but for now we need to resolve to live as children of the day. And then and then we find one last piece of instruction, an important piece of instruction. You see, ever since Adam was cast out of the garden, we have been plagued by a temptation for individualism. We hear it in our young children, right? One of the first things they learn to say, they learn to say mom, they learn to say dad, and then they learn to say, I can do it myself. Right? Individualism comes natural to the sinful heart. But Paul reminds us there is no such thing if we are to be children of the day, children of the light, there is no such thing as an individualistic Christian. You have been made part of a body. Each member, each individual given unique gifts, each individual called to serve all the others, and each one... relying on all the others in fact it's a possible impossible to live apart from the body of christ as christians you might as well expect to sever your hand and see it go on living it can't live without the body to which it was made by which it was made right if that hand is to continue living and thriving and serving and working it has to be attached to the body and if it's cut off the body will suffer so Just as true as that is of the physical body, that's true of the church. And therefore, the final thing we see here, briefly, is that we together must disciple the church for the day of Christ. Look at verse 11. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another just as also you are doing. Now hear this. This is not a command for office bearers or for super-Christians The way Paul expresses this is extremely expansive. He wants us to see that this applies to all of us. There is no member of the church of Christ who is able to stand on his own without the edification and the strengthening and the service of the whole. We are each called as members of the church to be our brother's keeper, our sister's teacher, our fellow Christian's guide. And we do so by means of encouraging. Let's face it, when you wait for something long enough, you lose excitement for the task. Right? You lose excitement over time. You get re- Maybe one of you kids gets really excited about a new toy that you're going to get, but mom says, you know what, you can get it by doing tasks every day, and each of those tasks will earn you a little bit of money toward that. And at first you're all excited, you're doing all of these tasks, but then the time draws on and maybe you lose some of that excitement. Well, if you do, you're not going to get what you aimed for. You have to keep building that excitement. You have to keep doing the task before you. Well, Jesus has been a long time in coming. The wait has dragged on for centuries. The delay, we don't know when it will end. He could return at any moment or it could be two more millennia. And if we're to endure that, we need encouragement. And that's what we're called to give to one another. You should be encouraged in the church by your worship. right? When you come here, there's something unique about gathering with the church for worship, isn't there? You're encouraged, you're energized, you're built up by the reality of living among the saints, of hearing the word together, of proclaiming the praises of God as one that's encouraging it strengthens us for the weight of the week ahead but we should also be getting that outside of church our schooling our schooling should be oriented around the day of the Lord I speak a minute to the teachers here when you teach them about history we read about the follies and the wars and the sin of mankind remind them in the midst of that it shall not always be so One day soon, there will be no more war. There will be no more hatred. There will be no more rioting because Christ will perfect it all. In science, we acknowledge that God created all things perfectly and yet we see the effects of the fall in every discipline of science, don't we? But remind them, one day soon, it'll be over. One day soon, we'll see all of this work in the utmost perfection. Can you imagine what that's going to look like? How that will... Oh! with the beauty of God's design showing through in every detail, in every aspect. So encourage them in school. And when you study the Bible together as families, and when you pray together as families, encourage each other by the promises you hear. Talk together about how those promises will look when they're fully fulfilled. And when you're praying, you're praying for the hurts and the heartaches and the difficulties of the family and of the church family, but don't forget to praise God that very soon... Very soon, those needs will end. Those faults will be gone. Those hurts will be healed. And not just formally, do it informally. When you see your brother or your sister is distracted and hurting, go up to them and ask how you can help. Ask how you can pray. Ask if you may pray for them then. Sure, it might seem awkward the first few times. So what? Do it anyway. Or remind them of the promise that you just read that morning in your devotions. That's the promise that God gave you for that individual, for that member of the body. Give them that promise. Talk to them about what the Lord has has assured them He will do. And be the encouragement, the strength, the the blessing that they need in that day. Because when we encourage each other in that way, when we build each other up in that way, when we pray in those ways... We're strengthening the church to live as children of the day. It's not always easy. It's not always easy. Elders, it means a lot of evenings away from home, going out to to visit and to learn about and to encourage the saints. Parents, it means making sure your kids aren't just reading the words, but actually understanding the promises and the commands of God's Word. Young people, it means... Risking being seen as uncool because you're holding each other accountable to live as Christians. You who are older, it means even though you have aches and pains and difficulties, striving to show those who are younger the joy of the salvation of the Lord. And when you see your brother or sister in sin, it means not just looking the other way, which is the easy thing to do, but confronting them in love and saying that's not how we live as children of the day. But don't just confront them. Don't just accuse them. Then walk alongside of them. Help them to, to walk that path of repentance to be held accountable privately so no one knows. That's hard stuff. Being so intimately involved with the life of your brother and sister and the Lord. But you know what? We're not called... We're not called to easy. Easy is living in the darkness. Easy is living in denial of the reality of the day that is coming. We're called to live as those who expect the coming of the day of Christ, those who are called to live as children of the light, and those who therefore are called to disciple the church for that day. And you'll goof up. You'll offend people. You'll fall short. Get up and dust off your armor. And remember that that day is coming. And remember that you're part of the body. And therefore, brothers and sisters, build up the body that when that day dawns, we might stand together in celebrating and praising the Lord who has finally returned and is making all things new and is giving us the fullness of what He has accomplished. May God grant us, this church family, the ability to, to persevere together unto the day of the Lord. And may that day come quickly. Amen. Let's pray. The oh Lord, our Heavenly Father, Your blessing upon us has been greater than we could ever have hoped. Your love toward us is evident on every side. And a big part of that is this church family of which you've made us a part, I pray that you would bless each member with a love for all the other members, with a concern and a care for all the other members, that we might disciple each other and build one another up, so that together we might expect the coming of the day of the Lord, and together we might live as children of that day. And Father, I pray that in in doing so, that you would give us such a delight in you and such a love for each other that those outside would recognize and see that there is something unique about this church, about this congregation, so that they might long to know and we might be able to tell them about the work of your Holy Spirit transforming us, your salvation enlivening us, your love giving us joy. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.